raise capital, but raise capital in a way that you can um, build on it slowly. So I built them. I started my entire company using square loans. I got my first one for 800 bucks, worked it. They paid it off based on my credit card sales and stuff like that. Offered me another one for $1,600, reallocated the money to what I needed in the moment and just kept building on it. So I stayed away from raising big capital and raised what I needed in the moment or, or where I thought it was at and where my recent or my short-term goal was. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, a serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups in the seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we've got another great guest on the podcast, Joseph uh, Kelman, if I pronounce his name right. Um, Lemon? Kelman? Uh, it was actually Clayman, so you weren't too Clayman. far off. I, was, I messed it up. I missed it both yeah. times. So, <laughs> but Joseph Clayman. So, um, just as a quick introduction to Joseph, started uh, working as an entrepreneurial family at uh, six years old, then off or went off to high school, then the military, and did logistics. And then at uh, 26 year old, six years old, came back, had a good job, but wasn't necessarily happy. So, sold everything and decided to roam around for a bit, and then uh, went into massage school at St. Thomas and did that. Um, for a period of time before um, ended up getting hit by a car, got sent home. Um, some then took some time to combine logistics with massage therapy and, and, and other medical aspects. And, uh, and then last, and then been doing that, I think for a, a last 12 years, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, about and, 12 years now, 13, somewhere in there. Yep. Yeah. And then I've uh, been working, or uh, also been working to get accepted in the medical community and uh, looking to um, help to reduce costs in the medical industry as well. So, with that much as a uh, as a introduction, welcome on the podcast, Joseph. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I just gave a qu- quick run through of uh, a much longer journey. So maybe take it back in time a bit. Uh, growing or growing up at uh, six or starting your entrepreneurial journey at six years old and your with your family. Yeah. So um, what happened? My my uncle had built like multiple businesses. And so I was always watching him. He was always buying something, building something, selling it, went, did that quite a bit. Then he bought a, a table and chair rental company. And that was his thing for quite a long time, for over a decade. And uh, so when I was, I was helping him, because in our family, it was if you're big enough to carry a thing, you're big enough to work. So we were carrying a, a chair at a time or like, you know, as you got bigger, you're like two of the boys, two of us would carry a table at a time or whatever. And then you kind of build up from there. So it was like, you're old enough to start doing this. You're going to do it with us. And then when I was eight, my parents bought a tent company and my uncle kind of pushed them into that. I were like, well, I got the tables and chairs. You guys grab the tents. We'll work together. We'll have a business. It'll be great. So that went on until I was, I stopped doing it when I was 18 because I went in the military and then they stayed doing it for a couple of years after I left. Um, but all of my friends worked for my parents. So that was the great part about high school was like all of my friends just worked with me. So we all hung out and we worked all the time, but my brother wasn't the same. So his buddies really didn't like to do all the work. So after a couple of years, my dad was like, I can't find any help anymore. So I'm just going to let this thing go. Uh, So, yeah, so it was really fascinating to be involved that early and watching everybody kind of like um, 
work and build and hustle. And like, my dad was like kind of the jack of all trades. So we were cleaning houses out for realtors and doing like repairs for inspections and different things like that. So it was always seeing, um, I call it like fireworks thinking where you're kind of like, you see all these opportunities and you just keep building upon them and you keep learn this thing and apply it to this thing. And then I've done that my entire life. And that's how, you know, getting, jumping ahead a little bit and coming back how I brought medicine and logistics together because I don't really stay in my lane very well. I like all the lanes. So now before we dive into what you're doing today and we'll absolutely get yeah. there in the journey. So did that absolutely. in high school, worked with the, you know, yeah. had your friends would sound like, you know, Hey, that's kind of a win-win you get a yeah. work with your friends, be around each other, hang out. And also it was amazing. Yeah. So we, uh, no, sorry. We, uh, we ended up like, I mean, we'd work 14, 16 hour days, like all day long. And then we'd come home and mom, my mom would make us food. We'd go downstairs and like, um, hang out in the basement or whatever. And we'd pass out and then we'd wake up the next morning and go back to work again. And every just kind of lived in my parents' basement. So that was like my whole summer. And then, uh, awesome. yeah. So I left there and went in the military. Um, it was kind of like the idea of getting out of your small town. I grew up in a town in Ohio with about 1300 people in it. Hmm. So there's more cattle in our county than there are people. So mm -hmm. it was your chance of getting out. So I went in the military for a couple of years and got discharged medically. Um, so I've gotten, I've had VA benefits and uh, uh, a little bit of disability sent for the, almost 20 years now, a little over 20 years, which helped my entrepreneurial journey tremendously was having those two things. Mm -hmm. So now, you, so you go into the military and you do that, get a chance to get out of the small town, see a different part of the country, serve your, uh, serve the country, which is all great things. And then you get discharged medical, you know, for medical uh, reasons. So you're coming back to the, the States or going to find a job. So how did you kind of figure out what you're going to do next after you got discharged from the military? Was it, you know, take some time, do rehab, you got into massage or, or you did odd jobs yeah. or kind of, Walk us through how you kind of went or what you did after you or left the military. Yeah. So I ended up back home and it wasn't, I was kind of like thinking I wanted to stay there for a little bit and I ended up staying for a couple of years. But then unfortunately, like where I'm from, the drinking is very prevalent because mm. there's nothing else to do there. So um, I like to kind of share this piece because it's very validating uh, for other people that are going through this, that I was like a very functioning alcoholic for many years of my life, probably close to a decade of my life. Um, so I went back home and immediately, as soon as I got back home, I went right back into drinking. I was like hanging out. With, the only time you saw your friends were, was at the bar. So it was like, I need out of here. So I wanted to find a corporate job. Well, how do you get into a corporate job? So I started applying for different places. I found this job that was actually checking, um, trucks in and out of a guard shack at Procter and Gamble. And so I went in for the interview. I went, actually went through three phone interviews and they scheduled each follow-up interview before they ended the first interview. So they kept going through it, kept going through it. They asked me for an in-person interview. And uh, I went there and talked to her and she, I was all dressed up. I was in a suit and tie and she goes, nobody told you you could come in casually. And I was like, no, I was like, but I would have dressed up anyways. So finished that meeting and three weeks had gone by. I didn't hear a word from anybody. I was like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm just try something else. You know, I thought it was going really well. And this woman calls me up and she was like, Hey, so, um, we were wondering if the job I applied for was sitting in a guard shack from 7 PM to 7 AM, um, just by myself checking trucks out in the middle of the night. 
Hmm. And she goes, we want to see if you want a different job that's in a different city. And they're both 20 miles from where I'm from. Well, the other job was a manager for a $9 million uh, logistics account for Kohl's department stores with 40 people under me. And I was like, how did I go from being a, someone in a guard shack overnight to being a manager over 40 people and, you know, basically taking the lead over an entire logistics account? So it was like this giant promotion before I even like even got the job. So everything went really, really well. Hmm. Well, the guy offered me the job because of the military. So that's, I was, because uh, I have my Eagle Scout and then, uh, and military background. So he's like, you don't have any experience, but I, I want to give you a shot and see if you can figure it out. So that's what, that was the start of my logistics world. So, uh, so you, you got into logistics and had the kind of the military background, which it sounds like military came in handy, it was helpful. And you, you know, kind of got the promotion as you were applying for the job, which is all the better. To get into operations and logistics for a period of time. Now, once you get into that, how long did you stay, and what made you decide to kind of transition or go towards more massage therapy? So I spent almost seven years, between six and seven years, in logistics. And when I was with Kohl's Department Stores, I was dedicated just to that account. So I was about three and a half years there. But that's working twelve eight. 10 to 12 hours a day in the office, and then you're on call 24-7. So when they hired me for that job, they told me I had to, they literally used the words, you have to be married to your job. So it was literally working. I would get two to three calls a night from 10 o'clock at night to six in the morning, like almost every single night. So sleep became a non-existent thing. And then I left Kohl's and moved to Seattle or like the Seattle area where our corporate office was at. And I worked with um, Coke and Pepsi, Pier 1 Imports. Um, just kind of like help figure all that stuff out, did all the border stuff for um, every, all, everything that came from the United States into Canada and back out, out of the British Columbia. I was doing all that stuff. Um, and then I was 26 and had really intense chest pains. I was sitting at my desk and I walked into my boss's office holding my chest and I was like, I don't really feel very good. And he had already had a heart attack before. So he like stopped. He goes, sit down. He called, called the paramedics up. I got taken out of work in an ambulance. It was my first dose of nitro I ever had, which that show gave you one crazy headache. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a year later, I was like, well, that was my wake up call. I was like, what am I doing? Right. I was like, it was all about the promotions. It was all about the money. It was all about how much you can do and how high you can get in the company. And I was just getting promotion after promotion after promotion. And then, um, I went to go get, um, I asked for a raise and you were well, bullet point what you do all day long. So I did that and I handed it to him. And the phrase I got was, well, we're not going to give you a raise because you're already doing pretty good for your age. And I was like, well, what the hell does my age have to do with how much money I make? <laughs> so that was the second thing of going, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? And on top of that, all the money I made, nobody taught me how to handle money. My parents didn't understand it. My mom's like, I don't know that stock stuff or whatever. I don't get it. So I never knew how to handle money. So I blew all of it. I didn't have anything when I was finished with all of that stuff, making 70 K a year. And I had nothing to show for it in the end. Cause I just spent it all. And uh, so I realized I was very unhappy. I didn't have, I had all this stuff, but I was like watching other people live this decadent life, live this like traveling and like doing all these things. And like, they didn't really own anything. And 
it just hit me one day and every thought I like completely lost my mind. I sent a two page typed email to the owner of the company, which him and I were on a first name basis, said everything I needed to say and uh, put my resignation in. And when they, when you resign there, like most companies now, they just walk you out that same day. There's no like two week notice. They're just going to tell you to leave. So I left, I didn't have any plan, hadn't, hadn't thought through anything. I was just, I, you know, what they say like nothing changes until you can say I've had it. Uh, and like that's where I was at I was like this is stupid I can't do this anymore I'm not going to do this anymore it doesn't make any sense so, so, so you, you quit or you you know you give your notice get there get walked out and I think you said when we chatted before you kind of sold all your earthly possessions so to speak and became a, a yeah. bit of a nomad is that right yeah I sold uh I had two houses a new car I had anything and everything from home theater systems like every everything was furnished and when I was finished, I had my car and about 12 boxes of personal belongings left out of everything I had. And I was sleeping on people's floors, couches, slept in my car a lot, um, just took odd jobs here and there, whatever I could. Tried to start a business doing uh, what I had learned from my dad, like building houses and like things like that. So I was getting a hold of realtors, trying to do pre-inspection or post-inspection repairs, things like that, like staging. And uh, that kind of didn't really really jive like really wasn't my thing so I kind of let that fall off I went back to getting just random jobs to like support myself but what allowed me to do that and this is kind of what I was mentioning in the beginning with about having veteran health care and a little bit of disability was that I had safety because I had enough money every month for my disability to rent a room somewhere that covered my rent and, and, and utilities and I had health care so it allowed me to just go around and like figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. So it hit me. I was like, my one goal was to move to the Caribbean, to move to St. Thomas or move somewhere in the Caribbean. So I picked a, a U.S. territory because I figured it was the easiest way to get my massage license down there. So I went to massage school for a year in Washington State, and then I graduated in December or uh, September of 08, and then moved to St. Thomas like two weeks later. And then, uh, just out of curiosity, so what made you decide to go into massage therapy? In other words, you, got, you did the military, you did logistics, those kind of go together, then to kind of make, and then you, you know, kind of went the other direction of selling, you know, all the earth possessions, going around for a period of time, doing odd jobs, and just, you know, to, or kind of removing yourself from that, that, uh, you know, the rat race of the world, so to speak. What made you decide to then go into massage therapy? um so I had this thought like right out of high school that like maybe I'd go into massage therapy and then I went in the military instead and then um after all that was done I was sitting there I was like how do you move to the Caribbean how do you like go down there and actually make any money because bartending isn't gonna you know make you a ton of money to be able to like afford rent down there so I was like how do I make enough money to live down there and I was like I'll do massage down there that makes pretty good money. And I'm sure like people, I can work on a resort or I can work on a yacht or can work whatever down there and I'll do that. Hmm. So I set my goal out for a year. School is 11 and a half months. And I was like, this is the whole reason I'm doing this. And I just like put everything into it and figured it out. I was doing tons of research, got on all different um, boards online to like talk to people that live down there and how what I needed to know and where I needed to live at and, and all of that stuff and just prepared it over the year. And then just just made it happen. So then I was down there till like December. And then I got um, the irony. It was well, one of the things they tell you when you move to the islands is that the island will tell you when it's time to leave. 
And uh, it was December, but mid-December of 08. I was only down there a few months and I was on a motorcycle that someone I met online before I moved down there, let me borrow for transportation. And I was riding the motorcycle to work to pick up my paycheck to buy a car when I got hit by a car and broke my left leg. Hmm. So it was time to leave. (laughs) I guess the island let you know, and it was supposed to be a short stay. So, yeah. So now, so you, you, you know, you plan, you go to the island and think, hey, that massage therapy will be great. And I'll do this. I'll get my license and I'll be able to, you know, kind of go and continue on the, the lifestyle that you were uh, hoping to set up. And then, you know, island told you to leave and you come back to the States. Now, how did you figure out what you're going to do from there? You know, what you're going to do as a going back to the lifestyle of all, you know, kind of just, you know, go around the country and you live one uh, lifestyle without a lot of possessions or, hey, I'm going to go back into where I was at before going to logistics or I'm going to go, where did, how did you kind of figure out what was the next step from there? So I went, I moved back home, obviously, because I was on crutches for four months. So I really couldn't do anything. Um, Didn't massage, didn't do anything. I ended up moving to Raleigh where I'm at now with a broken leg because I had met someone down here. I had friends that I knew down here. So I came down this way and uh went and actually started kind of didn't really do anything down here either and then i got working at a spa down here just doing massage at a spa but i was you know i was clearing 1200 bucks a week you know just doing massage so i was like i'll just do this for a while well then i was like well my relationship fell apart so i was like well screw this i'm gonna move to florida i'm gonna try something different i'm gonna try getting a different job in florida And then moved down there and then realized that I couldn't get my license down there because Florida doesn't give licenses out to people who didn't go to school down there. Mm-hmm. So I was back on my nomadic journey of like trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do. Now I can't do massage. I'm already living down here. So I used my disability money, found a place to rent. And then I did gigs on Craigslist for six months. I would just power wash a swimming pool or clean a garage out or mow a lawn or whatever. And just like make the money I needed to live on. Mm. and uh just kept like doing massage for a while but then i would what i was realizing my pattern recognition was kicking in from all of my logistics experience right that's all logistics is is recognizing what you, you what a previous experience to make the best decision possible in the present moment for the best future outcome mm. so i kept learning i've worked on almost fifteen thousand people in the last decade and you start to notice we're all the same person the only different really is our mental health and our story. But other than that, like anatomically, biologically, biomechanically, physiologically, a lot of times geographically, we're really the same human. That's why like, why I worked, I've talked to like trauma surgeons or like, you know, that you couldn't have to learn a thousand different stomachs to be able to work on someone's stomach they need to fix. So I realized like there's so many things that are just environmental in what we're doing in regards to medicine. So like medicine in my world, in logistical world is it's um, physics, mental health, and nutrition. Because we are just a ball of energy, a bag, a, a, a sack of consciousness moving through space relative to something else. The captain of our ship, our mental health, needs to know that our ship is safe in the environment and the people, the other animals it's around. And your nutrition has to support repair and function. So for me, coming out of logistics, my, my partner said this one time and it hit me why I've had to spend so much of my time, so much of my thought energy to not dehumanize people on my process. 
Because since I was six years old, people to me have only been headcounts. They're only dots on a page. They're not, you know, is Aunt Susie coming to your wedding? Yes or no. Hmm. I don't really know. I don't need to know anything about Aunt Susie. I just need to know that she's coming to your wedding. Hmm. Make sure there's room for her. So so now you, you kind of come to this realization that I think at that point, you're now looking and saying, okay, can I take kind of massage, you know, massage therapy, which you have experience, logistics, what you have experience and combine those into what would be kind of a new adventure, a new path forward. Is that right? Yeah. So it was just like, um, I started studying under this woman that was developing a system based in movement and massage. I had been working on it for like 40 years, but never really like took off. And I was like, so I studied under her for like three years, did all these classes, helped teach a bunch of her classes. And I was like, something's missing. And they kept saying, look globally, look globally. Well, what they meant was like, look farther down the body, right? One problem in the body might be from something else, not just where the symptom is. Mm-hmm. But then my logistics brain says, well, globally to me would be able to be zooming out to the point where I can see a human that's two inches high right? See us as we are, see us as the organism that we are. Mm -hmm. And how can I help the person, if you want to use the term holistically or whole body, and go, how can I affect this organism, this human as the entire organism, mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and say, look, here's this thing. How are we going to do it? So a lot of the system I created was going, well, why do we keep, why don't we encourage people? Why don't we build people up? Why do we tell them it has to be my way? Why does it have to be, you shouldn't do it that way and you should, should do it this way and my way is better and your way sucks. It's all egoistic. Like even in medicine, it's like, um, I can help you better and faster than anybody else. So you should come and see me instead. So now, so you have this kind of, okay, we're going to, Take it out. So then, you know, kind of get that or full or full, you know, over overall view as opposed to just looking at the, the myopic view of things. Now, turn that into a business or you're turning that into business to kind of tell, you know, bring the audience up to where are you at today or, or kind of how does that play in with work or what you're doing today? Yeah. So I've been working on, um, I guess, a working prototype of my products I've been building. So I have a seven by seven cube. And it has 10 cords through it and has 50 colored balls suspended from the cords. And I simply give people tasks to do with no, the phrase I give is there are no rules, rights and wrongs, and you can do anything you want. And I put them in there and then we just infer off of each other. Like they're learning from me, I'm learning from them and we work back and forth together. And they basically help them see different perspective or different ways of looking at adversity. Because a lot of people are basing it off their conditioning of like what they were taught to think about you know, I'll give people that say, touch all the reds and touch all the blues and they'll do them all one time. They stop. And I was like, why, why did you stop? I didn't tell you to stop. I just said to just keep touching them. So you can read off of someone's programming that way and help them see past these barriers. Hmm. So I help people with that, with like human performance, with mindset coaching and mix that with massage. Because once you get people the back into parasympathetic, get their brain relaxed a little bit, get them out of their, their locked in rigid body and into this play state. And then you put them on the table and do 20 minutes of massage and they leave a completely different person. Hmm. So really it's been about the, getting the products going and then figuring out what I can do with the products to create a system that involves 
helping somebody fit like person to person, but also selling products to teach people how to work with somebody or kids to play inside the cube together or a behavioral therapist working on a, a child with trauma. So maybe just to jump in just because we're getting towards the end of the podcast. Now we yeah, have a few questions I have. That kind of brings us up a bit to today and kind of walks us through your journey. And it's always a great transition as we've kind of now walked through your journey to hit on the two questions I always ask. So the first question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it? Well, so I would say it's the worst, but also the best at the same time, because about a year or so ago, I was losing the space I was subletting. And the woman said, hey, if you talk to the landlord, maybe he'll let you keep the space. So my ego brain of like, I'm going to do this thing. Let's make it happen. Let's burn the boats and take the mountain. I go to the landlord and I was like, hey, what do you think? I don't have any credit. I have no finances. I have nothing left. I'm at zero. What do you think? You think you give me a shot? And he goes, do you want to try it? And I was like, sure, I would love to. So I took on a four thousand, like a $3,500 a month lease with negative money. Hmm. And right when COVID hit, I had figured it out, worked my ass off, got to the point where I was only $300 behind in rent and then had to shut down. So I'm like, damn, I, I did it, but now I lost everything. So because that I put so much money into the biz, to the physical space that I could have invested into my own company and kept building it a lot bigger than wasting all of that money trying to keep this space that I was trying to show off. I think a lot of us try to show off. We want to show that our business is bigger than it actually is already. Instead of going, just staying real and staying down and staying like going, here's what I got. Let's see if I can build this thing solid as my solid nucleus and then expand it. Where for me, I was like, I'm going to take this big, fancy, beautiful space and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to make it. And I thought that was a great decision. And then now I owe $23,000 in back rent to the landlord from COVID. So now it wasn't that I wasted all this money for nothing because it's empty money that's gone. Yeah. You know, now I have debt on top of that. And it was like, it was all over my ego. It was all me going, I have this cool, fancy space. I can do it. No, and I, I think that that definitely makes sense. You know, sometimes what is, sometimes feed the ego or it makes sense from an outward for appearance isn't always best for the business. So I definitely think that's, you know, a mistake that's easy to make, but also a great one to learn from. So jumping down to the second question is just as a reminder to the audience, we'll also hit on, do the bonus question. We'll talk a little bit about intellectual property after the normal episode. But as we jump now to the last question for the normal episode, if you're to give one piece of advice, just one, to uh, the, uh, the to someone that's just getting to a startup or small business, what would that piece or what would that piece of advice be? Um, what I did was like raise capital, but raise capital in a way that you can um, build on it slowly. So I built them. I started my entire company using Square loans. I got my first one for eight hundred bucks. Worked it. They paid it off based on my credit card sales and stuff like that offered me another one for $1,600, reallocated the money to what I needed in the moment and just kept building on it. So I stayed away from raising big capital and raised what I needed in the moment or, or where I thought it was at and where my recent or my short-term goal was. 
No, that way I, I like that because you know one of the things I think that you see a lot of times with movies and articles and businesses is that they take a whole bunch of money, they raise a whole bunch of money, and yet they end up giving more away of their company. They give more away of you know what you know control of it. They end up you know taking on a lot more obligations than they necessarily need because they think that you know well more money is kind of better. And I think that a lot of times taking what you need at the time you need it can uh, be a better way to maintain more control, maintain better aspects of your business and to keep decrease the burn. So, well, as we wrap up the normal portion of the podcast, um, if people want to reach out to, they want to contact you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out, contact you or find out more? Uh, My website right now is, uh, move therapy m-o-v-e-t-h-e-r-a-p-y dot org dot org um you can also reach me by email at joe at neural movement therapy.com n-e-u-r-a-l movement therapy.com um so those are the two easiest ways um all of my socials are move therapy nc so that's at twitter facebook instagram uh tiktok i try to stay up on some of it i'm not a big social media fan so i do my best to keep him posted but Awesome. Well, I'll definitely, definitely encourage everybody to reach out, contact you, find out more and appreciate coming on the podcast. Now for all of you that are listeners, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Glad to be on the show. We'd love to have you. Two more things as listeners. Um, one, make sure to click subscribe to your podcast player so you know all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so other people can find out all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your startup or small business, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. So now with that, as we've wrapped up the normal portion of the podcast, we always get to switch the gears just a bit and now talk a little bit about intellectual property. And you get asked a question, then I get to answer it. So with that, I'll turn it over to you as to what is your top intellectual property question? Well, uh, my question was, um, I had a feeling what I was building was very special and it was very important to me. And this could have been an ego thing at the time. I don't know. It was a feeling I had. So I took out a patent six years ago on my product, on my cube mm-hmm. and went through legal zoom, which I don't think was the best idea because I think I could have done it way cheaper finding somebody to actually help me with it and been able to understand all of the details of it. Mm-hmm. But because I didn't get all of the details in the beginning, I didn't realize that I still had to come with, up with even more money when it got kicked back to me to go, okay, so here's the comparisons that we have. How is yours different than these five comparisons? Well, I didn't know I needed another $3,000 according to them to like submit my comparisons or how to do it or anything like that. So my mistake was, you know, not that LegalZoom is bad, but I think finding someone like you that would be able to help me walk through and understand the process better would have been great. But I guess, so my question was like, my, my patent went into abandonment. Mm-hmm. And originally they said, I was worried. I was like, man, what am I going to do? And now it's abandoned. I was like, can I still get it back? And they said, you know, like you could work with an attorney. They could, they could provide a letter and maybe, you know, we'll, we'll review it and maybe reactivate your account, reactivate your patent. So I kind of was like, well, I don't really have any other options other than that. So what happens now that I'm in an abandonment with my patent? Is that, is there any way of getting that back or is it just where it is now? Um, short answer is probably not. I mean, so if you, with a few exceptions, once you let a patent go abandoned, typically it's abandoned. It's now, 
if it was published or was now becoming the public domain, if anybody can use it, you can continue use it, but so can anybody else. The one exception they're talking about is you can do what's called a revival on a patent, which is basically if you if you unintentionally let it go abandoned, meaning you can't say, hey, I just didn't have the money to respond to it or I didn't have the time, that's not unintentional. You made the decision, hey, I'm just not going to respond to it right now. But if it was, hey, we didn't didn't get not proper notification or you know some other reason why it was unintentional, didn't mean for it to go abandoned, then usually within about a year to at most a year and a half after it's gone abandoned, you can up until that time you can make and uh, pay some fees. And they're usually fairly expensive. They're a couple thousand dollars and then have it revived. And so if you're kind of within that window and you and it was unintentional, yes, you can get it revived and you can have it basically reactivated. Aside from that, if it's just, hey, I, at the time I didn't have the ability to continue forward with it, I didn't have the funds, then typically you're just simply, it's gone abandoned and there's not a lot of recourse. And that's kind of why, you know, generally with all patent law and with most of the legal system, you you have you keep track of those deadlines because once you miss those deadlines, it's a lot harder to kind of put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, no, I, I can totally understand that. So I think uh, I think going forward, I I have a lot of so like the cube and everything it will eventually incorporate a lot of machine learning and AI. So I think my having the art as the art, and then work on the patents and stuff like that that I can use for myself to when it when it starts to talk to itself or starts to like work with people and automate automate medicine essentially so yeah and I, I think that would be the direction probably had to say okay the original patent that i filed that one's probably gone it's abandoned it doesn't look like it's worthwhile to revive but as you continue to innovate and continue to create and improve the product then you can still on an ongoing basis for those new things that you're creating innovating you can still seek for protection with that well with that we're going to wrap up the episode appreciate you again for coming on joseph it's been a fun it's been a pleasure and uh, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Absolutely. I appreciate it.